everybody. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I can remember a couple of months ago, I was teaching a class here at the church, and I don't know if it was a church history class, but anyways, we got onto the topic of some of the um, the early heresies that had threatened the early church, things like Arianism and Apollinarianism and Pneumatomachianism. I don't know, all of these different things we were talking about. And I had a feeling while we were going through them, kind of with a th- theological approach, that most of my students would say that they have never believed a heresy before. So I gave them a quiz of sorts, of like a true or false um quiz, I gave them a couple of statements and asked for them to tell me, yeah, whether they thought they were true or false. Things like Jesus is partially divine and partially human, or the Holy Spirit is a force. Thankfully, my students did pretty well, but um, according to some recent research by the um, State of Theology survey, the majority of American evangelicals overall probably would not have passed that. Jim, you know about this survey. Can you give us some headlines from that? <clears throat> yeah, it was called the State of Theology Survey, as you mentioned. It was jointly conducted by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. And interestingly, it's it's conducted on evangelical Christians. And so it's, it's also comparing it to the U.S. population at large. And it was alarming, uh, to say the least, um, and just how many mistaken beliefs, heresies, uh, uh, Christians believe. Um, evangelical Christians believe. So, for for example, 56% believe that Jesus is not the only way to God. 73% believe that Jesus was created by God. 43% will go further and say Jesus is not God at all, just a, just a teacher. Um, 60% believe that the Holy Spirit is not a personal being at all. 57% believe that humans are not sinful by nature. Now, again, remember, that's, these are like 57%, 60%, 73% of Christians, yeah. not U.S. population at, at large. And um, so it was it was alarming, mm. <laughs> to say the least. And they've been doing this for a while, but it just keeps getting worse, just worse. Well, I was hoping to maybe take what some what were our alarming results and maybe have a productive conversation about this. Maybe there are people who are listening and they heard some of the things you just <clears> mentioned <throat> and they're like, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if I believe that or maybe I do believe that. And so if I just want to walk through a couple of those findings and get your thoughts on them. So for example, um, one of the findings was that um, about a quarter of evangelicals said that the Bible is not literally true. Now, at first I thought, well, maybe that's just an issue of semantics. Like people have different definitions of the word literal um, or literally when it comes to the Bible. Do you ha- do you think that's what it is or do you think it's something more than that? No, I don't. Uh, the average understanding of literal is just, are you going to take this at face value? Are, you know, are you going to read it and believe what it says? You know, I'm going to take it literally. I'm going to take it at face value. I'm, whatever it says goes. Um uh, so I don't think this isn't someone, the respondents were not people who were wanting to reject a wooden hermeneutics uh, or wanted to, felt like there, there needed to be nuance or certain things. This is about whether the Bible is to believe, to be believed, that what it says is to be believed. And so you have almost a quarter of Christians saying, I'm not prepared to say that I'm going to believe you know, everything I read in the Bible. What do you think is behind that? Why do you think that people would would doubt that? 
Well, I think I think you have to raise the question: Why, in general, are all of these mistaken beliefs, these heresies, these heretical ideas, why are they being embraced? It's because the average person is uh, simply um, uh, not particularly theological, and uh, and they haven't been trained in theology, and theology isn't going. And we can talk more about that later if you'd like. But the reason is, quite frankly, they're they're increasingly mirroring the world. And the world's perspectives, which has, for example, uh, a weak, if not non-existent view of the doctrine of revelation that doesn't view the Bible as special at all. In fact, they just view it as being riddled with errors and and not an inspired book written by, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they, they lack any of that. And so we're finding that the average Christian does, too. And so they might look at the Bible more as a self-help book. Uh, that they go to more of a, um, you know, nice stuff in it. But there's going to be some stuff I read that I already know I'm not going to, yeah, I don't buy that. I don't believe that. Or I'm not going to buy that to be true because they just see it as a human fallible book, maybe somewhat inspirational in areas, but not divinely inspired, certainly not truth without mixture of error. Hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about one of the other findings, which was that more than half of, of evangelicals affirm that, this was a statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That wasn't surprising to me. But then, then again, there's that Bible verse that I think that even if you don't know much of the Bible, you at least know is would be familiar to you, which is um, John 14, 6, which it says, you know, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. So where do you think the confusion is there? I think that the average Christian, obviously more than half, so we can say the average Christian, you know, the typical Christian, majority of Christians maybe would be the best way to say it, <clears throat> um, has bought into this cultural idea of tolerance. And, and I think that's worth talking about, uh, the great cultural value of tolerance for our day. When you talk about tolerance, you really need to talk about it in three ways. There's three, at least three kinds of tolerance. The first type is legal tolerance. And legal tolerance is the freedom to believe whatever it is you want to believe. Uh, the second type of tolerance is uh, social tolerance, which is accepting someone regardless of their belief. And then the third type of tolerance is intellectual tolerance, which is accepting all ideas as equally valid and good and right and true. Christianity would be very much in support of legal tolerance, uh, very much, obviously, in support of social tolerance. I mean, Jesus uh, was known as a friend of sinners. Where we would draw the line intellectually, theologically, biblically, is intellectual tolerance. We do not believe that all ideas are equally valid, equally good, equally right, equally true. Uh, there we draw the line. But I think the average person does as well when they think about it. You know, just a silly example. Let's just say that, you know, you came to me and you said, uh, Jim, I think that the best way for you to handle your car is to put sand in the gas tank instead of gas. And I would say, well, you know, Alexis, I, I, I love you to death, you know, and, and I, I, you know, this is not going to affect us socially. <laughs> you know, you're my friend. <laughs> you know, you're like a daughter to me. That's not going to change that. And, and, and so... Um, you know, we're good there in terms of that kind of tolerance, in terms of legal. If that's what you want to do with your car, you bought it, you paid for it, you have the freedom to do that. I'm not going to, you know, go to war with you on that. But I'm not going to accept intellectually that that's the best way for me to handle my car. And so you can have legal tolerance and social tolerance, but obviously draw the line at intellectual tolerance. Today, Christians 
I think have just conflated all this. I think all people have actually in our culture have just conflated all three types of tolerance into mm -hmm. just one type of tolerance. And it has to be both legal, social. And if you grant legal and social, you have to grant intellectual tolerance as well. So there is no nuance. There is no, you know, teasing that out. So I think Christians today are confusing legal tolerance and social tolerance with almost feeling like you have to say intellectual tolerance. And I think that's really what's undergirding this. Mm, interesting. I mentioned Arianism earlier as a, like a heretical threat to the early church, but based on these results, Arianism is alive and well because 73% of, of evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And then 43% said that while Jesus, you mentioned this, while Jesus was a great teacher, he was not God. And again, that blows my mind, like that Christians don't are saying that Jesus is not God. And so while Arius certainly had kind of deeply theological considerations that led to his conclusions, um, whether you agree with them or not. I feel skeptical that there are deeply theological considerations behind the modern form of Arianism. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> just in case we lost some people with what we're talking about, let me give a quick review of the great Arian controversy and what we're talking about. The Arian controversy of the fourth century is widely regarded as one of the most um, significant in all of church history. There was a man named Arius who lived between 250 and I think around 336, who argued that the scriptural titles for Christ uh, were, and which seemed to point to Christ's equality with God, were mere like courtesy titles. Uh, in truth, Arius said Christ was to be seen as a creature. Although the first of, among all creatures, uh, so while the sun is not like any other creature, Arius argued that he is a creature nonetheless. Um, he even said that the sun was a perfect creature and outranked all other creatures, uh, but was indeed created. Hence, there was a famous phrase attached to Arius, there was once when he was not, in reference to Christ. So, so much for the Trinity. Arius was, was trying to draw on a number of biblical passages. I mean, he wasn't just kind of like pulling this out of thin air. He was just misunderstanding or misinterpreting various passages, such as in John 14, where you have Jesus saying that the Father is greater than he is, or Mark 13, where Jesus says no one knows the exact time of the second coming, not even him, only the Father. So Arius and his followers uh, maintained that Jesus was similar uh, to the Father in nature or essence, but not the same as the Father in nature or essence. Uh, now, this received a swift and overwhelming and hostile reaction from within the church uh, and others, leaders who were able to marshal an obviously impressive array of biblical evidence and passages. Uh, you mentioned some, John 14, John 3, which formed the basis of Orthodox Christology to this day to combat his ideas and to point to the fundamental unity between the Father and the Son. Hmm. Also, the passages that the Arians were using were shown to be misinterpreted and the ones that they were kind of pointing to that I alluded to, they were missing out on the subordination of the son to the father during the incarnation and how his language reflected that state of subordination during the incarnation. In other words, during his incarnation, Jesus filled a different role. And there's places in Philippians and others where it says he emptied himself of his glory and, 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 you know, someone would touch him and he would say, who touched me? You know I mean? He, 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 there was, we're not altogether sure of what it meant when I said he emptied himself of his glory, but we do know that during the incarnation, there was a subordinate role of the father, um, even though he never ceased to be fully God and fully man. It's also argued that the divinity of Christ was of central importance to the Christian idea of salvation. This was brought up against Arius. 
uh, if what Arius was maintaining was true, then Christ couldn't save anyone because no creature, mere creature, can save another creature. Uh, only God can save. And even Arius at the time ha had to agree with that. You know, he seemed to agree with that. According to the New Testament, um, salvation was meant to come through Jesus. The conclusion was reached and uh, affirmed at the famed Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, and the conclusion was that Jesus was God himself in human form, the second person of the Trinity, and any other view is heresy of the highest order. Specifically, it was determined, uh, I don't want to get too detailed about this, but, <laughs> but specifically it was uh, termed that Jesus was homo, same, usias, substance, homo usias, uh, same substance, which is one being, one in being, one in substance with the Father. That was opposed to uh, homoi usias, the insertion of an I after the O, homoi usias, which meant of like substance or of like being. Uh, Edward Gibbon had this massive work on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And he said, never has there been so much energy spent on a single vowel. Uh, that vowel mattered because mm -hmm. being like is very different than being of, you know, same substance, very sure. different than being just similar. So the Council of Nicaea produced what would eventually become known as the Nicene Creed, which stated that Jesus Christ was the same substance with the Father. And as, but as you mentioned, Arianism now is again on the rise, even though this was settled back in, you know, uh, in the earliest days of the Christian movement. According to the annual State of Theology survey, one of the five, of the five most common uh, mistakes, uh, mistaken beliefs held by evangelicals, two are directly tied to Arianism. Mm -hmm. uh, the whopping 73% that agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, which is heresy. Mm -hmm. And 43% affirming that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. So two direct Arius, Arian statements. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, I don't think the reasons have anything to do with the <laughs> robust theological conversations they were having in the fourth century. This is more about, quite frankly, just a watered down understanding of classical Christology. Uh, and, and, you know, when you read, read the State of the Theology report, that was one of my Ligonier and Lifeway. Ligonier was founded by a guy named R.C. Sproul. And they quoted R.C. at the beginning where he would quip, he used to quip that everyone's a theologian. But then he would add, but not everyone is a good theologian. Mm, <laughs> so, sure. uh, and so, and no, they're not. And so I, this is just an area where, you know, Christians have, have lost their theological way and uh, it's alarming that it, doing it in such a foundational way that's been such settled orthodoxy from the beginning. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think through when you when you were mentioning like the Arian conflict and the early church trying to sort out the relationship between um, the Son and the Father. And um, even at first, the Holy Spirit was kind of absent from those original initial conversations. Like we'll we'll get to the Holy Spirit a little bit later. And I feel like the Holy Spirit has continued to be, although it was settled that he was a member that, that it's a member of the Trinity early on, it, it still is a very the most confusing, I think, to many Christians part of the Trinity or person of the Trinity. So I wasn't surprised to see the results that most people believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a member of the Trinity. Um, so why do you think this is, again, like, what do you think is behind this? Why do you think that we just have such a struggle with understanding the Holy Spirit as a part of the Trinity? Yeah, well, let's uh, kind of like I did with Arian. Is, yeah. Let me kind of take you back a little bit and just make sure we have a couple of at least two foundational understandings uh, of the Holy Spirit in place, because the Bible gives us at least two very 
important fundamental truths about the Holy Spirit. The first truth about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that the nature of God is triune, that the, you have three persons who are one God. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons who are one God. Now, that's a lot to take in. And uh, it kind of boggles the mind a little bit you know, because it's like, what, what, you know? And what's interesting is that when God reveals who he is, including his triune nature, uh, it's done in a way that, that is not particularly explanatory. It's more like, this, this, is who, this is who I am. I'm just telling you who I am. Uh, so it's more of a declaration than it is an explanation, which if you're God is more than fair, <laughs> you, you know, you know it's, but it's like he says, I'm triune. So deal with it. This is just who I am. I'm telling you who I am and what I am. But, uh, but what I often will try to remind people, whether it's something like the Trinity or whether it's the idea of eternity, you know, no beginning, no end, all these mind numbing kinds of things that you can come across when you begin to reflect theologically on things. Um, just think about the whole three in one Trinity. If you could wrap your mind around everything there is to know about God and understand it and fathom it and fully get it. And there, and you know, there's no mystery and there's no wonder at all attached to it. I mean, you've got it. Then God is no bigger than your intellect. Hmm. And I don't care how smart you are. That's a very small God. And so the triune nature of God is simply one of those things that God says about himself. You know, he exists as a trinity of three persons who are one God. Um, and that's what trinity means, three in one. Uh, while each person has a unique role and a unique ministry, uh, each also shares all of the attributes of God. I mean, so you have just like God the Father and God the Son, um, God the Holy Spirit is eternal. Uh, for example, in Genesis, it talks about him being active in creation. Uh, like God the Father and like God the Son, he's omnipresent. Uh, there's that 139th Psalm that says, where can I go from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. Nowhere. I mean, because he is everywhere. Um, in the New Testament book of Acts, we read that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. And so that's first. The Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Um, the second basic truth about the Spirit is that he's personal. And this is where also where people start to get fuzzy. Throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a person. Um, most people think of the Holy Spirit as a, as a force, an energy mm -hmm. force, an it, uh, rather than a he. Uh, the reason we lean into force uh, or something impersonal, I think, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, in terms of, well, why is this such a disconnect? Um, well, one reason you could say, well, they just haven't read their Bible or they haven't studied it or they don't know their theology. But I also think that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's because it's just hard to visualize spirit. We, we can visualize the other two members of the Trinity as persons, but not the spirit. It, it doesn't help that many people uh, cut their teeth early on or heard read the King James translation mm -hmm. from the 1600s uh, that referred to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. And uh, but Holy Ghost is not the best translation of the original Greek by a long shot. Uh, it should be translated Holy Spirit. Uh, but why? But this is key. The Holy Spirit is is person and personal. And, and Jesus always referred to the Holy Spirit in personal terms. Again, not as an it, but as a he, a, a person. Um, and not only is the in the Bible is the Holy Spirit referred to in personal terms, particularly the New Testament. 
But throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is attributed with having all of the components of personality, a mind, uh, feelings, a, a will. We read that he thinks and he can be grieved mm. and uh, makes decisions. He's fully per personal. I love how you mentioned how, although there are aspects about God that are very difficult to understand, I mean, that's, that's to be expected with a divine God, that we should use that as reasons to kind of worship or to be in awe of a God that is so much greater than us, uh, rather than what I think is happening with a lot of these responses, which is that because I don't get this, I'm going to minimize God and package him in a way that I can understand him. It's almost like recreating a God, but some, but a God that's a lot less impressive than the real God, which is kind of sad. But I don't think most people realize that when they, I don't think people play that forward or play the logic out um, as you just did, which I think was really helpful. Of realizing I think what that. you just said was, was really well put. And I think that's insightful that, that what, what I don't, what does fall into the realm of mystery, what does fall into the realm of wonder where, where, you know, I, I'm getting into, the wonder and majesty and grandeur of God that is so far exceeds what my rational faculties can even begin to comprehend. I'm going to, I'm going to pull him in. I'm going to redefine him. I'm not going to let God be God. I'm going to let my image of God that can fit into my brain, my rational thinking. And again, that's not much of a God and, and certainly not worthy of worship. And, and so I think that you're right. I think that it's a, it's a perverse kind of thing to be wanting God or having trying to fill a spiritual shaped hole. But the first thing you do is you reduce that God to something that's no bigger than you. Yeah, exactly. Mm. We need to learn how to hold mystery a little bit better, I think. <laughs> um, okay, one more. And I think this gives us a lot of insight into culture, at least it did for me. And it was that the majority, again, 57% of evangelicals agreed that this was a statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. This isn't a new heresy by any means, but I do think that this is especially threatening to the gospel. They all were, but this like says a lot about us and our ability to receive the gospel. Um, what would you like to add about that? That the exact opposite is true of what people believe. <laughs> exact opposite. All of us are sinners and we cannot save ourselves or lift ourselves out of our sinfulness. The word sin is uh, from the Greek word amartia. It's, a, it's an archery term. Uh, and it literally means like when you'd pull a, an arrow back and let it loose, if you, if you missed the mark, it was called an amartia, a sin. And in the original use of the word, it didn't matter whether it was by an inch or by a mile. It was a sin. It, it, wasn't, the, it wasn't the degree you missed. It was that you didn't hit the bullseye. And the Bible takes this word and makes an, an arresting statement. All have sinned all fall short, bringing in that archery imagery, all fall short of God's glorious ideal. That's Romans 3.23, one of the classic verses on this. The Bible teaches that when it comes to living uh, life the way God intended, that all people are sinners and all are missers of the mark. And it's not just a failure to be perfect. Uh, sin speaks of willful choices, of, of conscious decisions to disobey God. Uh, it's not merely a side effect of humanity. It's the choice we have made with our very soul to go against the moral law and will of God. Hence the theological term, total depravity. Uh, this is the idea that sin infects every aspect of our being. It impacts all of what a human is, not just the body or just the mind or just the emotions. Uh, now that does not mean that the sinful person is totally insensitive 
to matters of conscience or of right and wrong, or that every person is as sinful as possible, uh, nor does it mean that the sinful person engages in every possible form of sin. Uh, all it means is that sin is a matter of the entire person, and we are totally unable to save ourselves um, from our sinful condition. Salvation by works, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, is impossible. Uh, our sin separates us from God, and unless somehow addressed, that separation is going to remain in place. And because of our sinfulness, if there is going to be atonement, it's going to have to be made by someone else on our behalf. And so that's a good stiff dose of theology, which mm -hmm. I think we've gotten, hopefully, with all the way we've walked through this whole this whole mm -hmm. podcast. But uh, good, because that's what is so lacking in in uh, in a lot of people's lives and not necessarily to their fault, but they're just these things haven't been talked about robustly. Yeah, this one just gets me, though, because. It just doesn't seem to be in touch, I don't know, in tune with reality. Like, I feel like just look at the headlines, watch the news for an hour, and you will see that maybe we're not as great as we like to believe we are. I don't know. I just have a hard time. Yeah, hard time and, you know, and, and let me kind of kind of deviate something here, but just kind of make a cultural observations that that it the it used to be this is there's an irony to this. And I don't mean to take you off of your next question, but there's an irony to this. Um that it used to be irreligious slash liberal, whatever word you want to use, but people who were not Christians, who were more you know, progressive and part of the enlightenment and you know, the, the, the taking down of Christianity, they really believed in the essential goodness of humanity. Mm -hmm. And they really believed that there was a utopia that could be made. They really believed that the world could be and would be a greater place, to be a better place. And and it's in um, and then, of course, you had a, a world war break out and then you had a second world war break out and against the backdrop of atomic bombs and concentration camps and 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 such evil that was present in, in for example, the Nazi regime, you, you just didn't hear that anymore. I yeah. mean, it's like the intrinsic goodness of humanity and culture's getting better. It stopped. And uh, so that was one of the things that, that was present with those who were not of faith. And then they kind of got taken to shop on that. So mm -hmm. irony of all ironies, that the Christians who have rooted in their theology, the inherent sinful nature of humanity, the world is not going to get better on its own. If anything, it's going to get worse. And we need to be extricated from our sin th for, through salvation by grace alone. It's ironic that, this is, that we're getting the unbeliever theology and we're, we're the ones now thinking that, you know, we're essentially good and the world can be a better place. And that, and again, it's just that, that, that's, that switch is a bitter irony. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. That is very, that is very odd. Um, we're running out of time here. So I have one last question, but I think it's a really important one. And it's essentially, you know, like what is, what does the church do with this? Because, you know, I think like when a teacher gets the results of like their students' exams, it, it reflects on them. You know, how how well have I done teaching? And so I'm kind of thinking, you know, you being a pastor, us being in ministry, like what should the church do with results like this? How, yeah, what do we do? Wake up mm. and and lament and repent. I mean, we're, we're, we are not making Christian theology known. We're not teaching it. We may be teaching or preaching the Bible, but we're not going beyond either giving biblical literacy, you know, getting the stories across basic Bible knowledge, or we're not getting past just the biblical application of life principles, you know, how to be a better parent or something like that. 
uh, we need a robust Christian mind. Mm -hmm. And we need to make it clear how to think about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and salvation and uh, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church and sin and humanity and, and creation. Um, there's confusion and compromise because of, of the lack of this. And, um, you know, one of the things that you and I have done through the Mech Institute is we, you know, we, we teach graduate level courses on systematic theology. We teach, as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, you, you did a, an entire institute class just on classic heresies mm -hmm. that the church has addressed over, over throughout church history. I mean, and, and I mean, I would like to say that all churches are doing those kinds of things, but the fact is that the vast majority are not, and it's showing mm -hmm. as it, that that we're not just getting becoming atheological. Whereas, in other words, meaning we're not we're we're not just divorcing ourselves from theology. We're not thinking theologically. We're actually embracing heresy, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's a that's a frightening thing. So I do, I do think this falls right on the doorstep of churches and church leaders. It's 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 uh, it's not. I mean, that's it's that's our job is to is to to correct that. Hmm. Well, um, that's all the time that we have for today. So again, hopefully this was a great listen for you this week and we hope you'll join us again next week.